0: You have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to 1 Samuel, 1, Ch- 1 Samuel chapter 7. There's a lot of context with the message this morning, and so forgive me if I speak a little quickly and go over a lot of uh, Jewish history in a short amount of time, but I believe the context will greatly help us. The context is very relatable to our time, The message today is Samuel's sermon. Samuel's sermon to the people of Israel was repent, replace, and repair. Repent, replace, and repair. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll look backwards and and have a little bit of context. But let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kerjapturim came and fetched up the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the Ark abode in Kerjapturim that the time was long for it was twenty years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again this morning humbly before you, Father, to earnestly seek, to desire your word and your truth. Teach us with your Holy Spirit Father, work your power in the lives today. We'll give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, at this period of time in chapter 7 that we had started, the ark had actually returned unto the people. Now, what you can do is call it from Shiloh to Jerusalem. Now, at this time, if you kind of think about the history of Israel, the Ark had never been to Jerusalem yet. This is the time that it was very close to when they were in Canaan, the time after Joshua, and then the Judges, and then here comes Samuel onto the scene. But the Ark was in a place called Shiloh. Now, this place Shiloh was a little bit north of Bethlehem, and it's actually in the land of the Samaritans. Now, what had happened... We know that there was wickedness. Come back to chapter 4. We'll briefly just discuss, and I'll, I'll jump a little bit, but to give you some idea. In chapter 4, it says that the word, of, and then the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies." And so the people went to Shiloh they, and they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts which dwelt between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant. Now quickly, at this point in time, Israel is sinning greatly. These, the, the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Their sins were separating them and here they go to battle against the philistines and they're used to god winning all of their battles and here the philistines come and they whip them and they're like well we don't understand what, what's going on i mean they're, they're not realizing that there's evil in their life they're doing what is called idolatry they are bowing down remember in canaan they had that issue they didn't cast out the false gods and the idols and things like that, Israel had a history of continually falling into idolatry, into the false gods of Canaan, where they were dwelling. But here we see that God does not go to the battle for them. The Philistines smite them. And so what's their next thought? Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's let let God win our battles for us. And so they put more trust into the object of the thing of God. So they, so uh, here, you know, you have um, Hophni and Phinehas, the the priests that went out and, you know, they're trying to use the Ark of the Covenant as some kind of magic wand. You know, they don't want to forsake their sin. They don't want to forsake the idolatry that's in their life. But what they would like to do is use God as a novelty. I've got this great need. I can't believe this, God. Here, let's use you, God. To fight my battles but I'm not going to give up my life I just want you to do the hard things for me how many times do people do that they look to God as some kind of genie some kind of novelty and then when you need him he's not there and that's what we see with Israel and the Philistines so what happens well in chapter 4 the Israel or the Philistines whip him again even with the cart even with the ark, with them. In verse 10, And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen, and the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, which was the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. So what happened? The Philistines stole the ark. All right, so... That was chapter 4. Chapter 5, now the Philistines, and what that means is the nations, the Gentiles, the world system, those who are in idolatry, they're not the people of God. They're not the nation of God. They're they're not worried about the things of God. But what do they do? They say, you know what? Let's take the Ark of the Covenant and put him with our gods. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 5. The Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant next to their false god, Dagon. And so what happens? Well, the next morning they go into their temple and Dagon is laying face down. And they're like, well, that's, that's strange. Here, let's, let's, let's set up Dagon, back up. And then the next day they come out and Dagon is face down with its head and its arms cut off. And you know what? Lo and behold, they're like, well, you know what? No, nobody's like the God of this God. How many times, and we see this today, how many times are these sinful and wicked groups wanting to adopt Christianity into their lifestyle? Isn't that what the Philistines did? They wanted to adopt God as just another idol in their life. Oh, you know what? Let's just, let's just go to him. That's what the Athenians did at Mars Hill. Let's erect all these false gods. That, and then we'll, let, let's erect a false god and call it the unknown god. The god that we've not had of our own imagination. We see the same absurdity when these sinful groups try to adopt Christianity. They try to adopt God and and still live in their sin. God is not going to have any other God before him. Even though the, the Ark of the Covenant was taken away from Israel by their sin and brought into captive by the Philistines, God's not going to dwell with them. So, what happens next in chapter 6? Well, actually, if you chapter 5, verse 6, the Lord got angry with them, And what did he do? I think most of us know this. But the hand of the Lord, or this is chapter 5, verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the five cities of the Philistines. And he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds. Even Ashdod and the coast thereof. Y'all know what emeralds are? They're hemorrhoids. Philistines were like, okay. And you know what's interesting is that city of Ashdod, they're like, let's get rid of the ark. So they sent it to Gath in verse 9. Another Philistine city. And they're like, yeah, we'll take it. They probably didn't bring up the fact that God had just you know, had vengeance on them. So they're at Gath, and what did the Lord do at Gath? He smote them. And they're like, okay, let's take the ark, and they took it to Ekron, another Philistine city. (laughs) They kept trying to pass it off onto the other cities, and God, one after another. And finally, they had a council together, and the end of chapter 5, and they said, we've got to return this ark. So in chapter 6, it was seven months, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And so they decided to put it on a new cart with golden sacrifices of mice and emeralds. It's interesting, isn't it? That they made gold, the emeralds, as a sacrifice. In chapter 6, verse 13, those of Beth Shemesh saw the ark coming and they rejoiced. And so the Levites said, hey, here comes the ark. Let's give sacrifice. But what happens in Beth Shemesh? Well, people in verse 19 of chapter 6, they try to look into the ark. And he smote the men of Bethshemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord and even smote of the people 50,000 and three score and ten men. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. So we see the Ark of the Covenant moving around, and now in verse 21, they say, right, those in Beth Shemesh said, let's just take it and give it to Kerjath jerim And that's where it ended up, in Kerjath jerim for 20 years. Now, finally, in 2 Samuel, we're not going to turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is when David goes and fetches it and brings the Ark to Jerusalem. So... That is the journey of the ark from Shiloh to Jerusalem. And we see the wickedness that was all throughout there and how God had sovereignly brought it to them. But here in chapter 7 is where we start. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjatarim that the time was long for it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. We see once again over and over throughout the word of God the failure of man and the mercy of God. It was their sin that had separated them from the presence of God in their lives. It was the sorrow of heart which they had towards the Lord that we see here that they lamented And once again, we see that a repentful heart, that God once again in his tender mercy and by his grace forgives them. And his presence returns in their life. Over and over. But, you know, it's not what what returns the presence of God in our lives. I mean, especially if you've been sinning, you've been doing things your own way. God's presence is not with you. That's what the ark meant to Israel, was the presence of God. The security of God in their lives. But it had been cold. He's not been there. And then they searched their own hearts. you know what What didn't impress God? Why God doesn't return in his presence? It's not your own piety. It's not that you're resolved. It's your heart. They were sorrowful of heart because they missed the Lord they loved in their life. And they were repentful of their heart to the Lord. And the Lord heard. The Lord saw. And He turned to them. And He forgave them of their sins. Because they were sorrowful with a godly sorrow of heart. Lord, forgive me of my sins. They lamented after the presence of God. Now, this was after 20 years. It it stayed in Kyrgyzstan. The presence of God was right there. It was within their grasp. And we see Paul, even today, talk about that, that the word is nigh thee even in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It's right now. The presence of God back in your life or in it for the first time is now. It's right here. It's there. And the difference is your heart. Not your piety, not your uh, church attendance, though we all appreciate and love that. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I want your hearts to be right before God. And that's the message which I preach. That's the message I'm compelled to preach, that I'm, I'm duty-bound to preach, that I'm not doing you any favors getting up here and talking to itching ears, giving you entertainment, saying, no, you know what, you're great, you're great, you're great, you're great. Let's all go to Denny's. You know, I, that's not my job. And I'm going to be accountable to God for every word I say to you. And those that are of his fold, those who are his people, need to hear this word and see the pattern of the trip-up they had in their lives and look inside your heart and see, do I have a pattern of trip-up? Now, what was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant to the people was the presence of God. In an object today we don't have the presence of God in an object the presence of God is not the church building the presence of God is the ark of the covenant who's the ark of the covenant Jesus Christ he is the fulfillment of all the things uh, inside and outside of the ark just real quickly uh, they had this object that had foreshadowed a person today we have the person Inside the ark, it was the law, it was God's requirements for righteousness, and and it was manna, it was God's provision and his promises that he had given in the rod of Aaron. So the manna that was in the ark is a type of Christ. It's foreshadowed the life-sustaining power that that through Jesus your life will have. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The manna which God had given, that Moses had given you, it wasn't given by Moses. But the real manna has come down from the Father. He is in John chapter 6, verse 32. He is the true bread from heaven. Inside the ark was also Aaron's rod. And I like this, especially you've been with us on Wednesday for Hebrews. The significant, you know, you always hear it was Aaron's rod which buddeth, which buddeth. Ever since I was a kid, I was like, what does that mean? Which buddeth? I don't get it. Well, back in the days of Aaron, there were a there was challenges to Aaron's priesthood that come upon the people, and God to show that God had sovereignly chose Aaron to be the mediator, to be the priest. That He said, "All right, have these men lay down their staffs," and then all of these men lay down their staffs, and, and along with Aaron, and then Aaron's butted. And so God demonstrated to all that he has sovereignly chose that Aaron would be the high priest. That he would be the mediator. And how has Christ fulfilled that? How is Christ fulfilled? He, Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant, of the new covenant. And that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 5. And no man taketh this honor unto himself. That means being ordained a priest. There was no priest that said, you know what, today I think I'm going to be a priest. And I'm just going to go ordain myself to be a priest. No, that was a designation only by God. Only God could designate and ordain a priest. He says in verse 5 of Hebrews, So also Christ glorified himself not to be an high priest, but that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He said, In another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God has ordained Jesus to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That he is the supreme priest. And God has ordained that, just as he ordained Aaron. Well, the Ark of the Covenant also had the law. The law is the standards of God which are always before God. God's standards have not changed. How is Christ fulfilled? How has Christ become? Christ has fulfilled the law. He said, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law. That he led a sinless life. That the, the fact that God requires righteousness before him, to stand in his presence, that is through Jesus. It's called imputed righteousness. He is Jehovah Sidkenu. That means He is Jehovah our righteousness. He has fulfilled the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. But also outside the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. Jesus had become our mercy seat. His blood stands between the wrath of God and the believer. When the Lord saw the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat, sprinkled on the Ark, it appeased His wrath. And so now, Jesus being the very Son of God, you know, I just got to thinking, Jesus is the mercy seat, and it's by His own blood we are healed. Jesus, bleeding, bleeding on Himself, He's the mercy seat. I mean, it's His own blood. He once for all has taken away my sins. The bloods of bulls and goats couldn't do it in those Old Testament sacrifices and systems, but Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, without blemish... Has taken away my sins he has justified us freely there's also the shekinah glory and we know that we have the glory in the presence of god through jesus christ they had the glory of god in their presence through the ark but jesus is a fulfillment and we have the glory in the presence of the shekinah glory of God through Jesus Christ we also fellowship with God we have access to God on his throne through our mediator Jesus Christ and the emblem and the reminder of the ark of the covenant that was there but we see that now the ark is within reach now in verse 2 it had been so long without the presence of God in their lives now they have the opportunity for revival and what happens Uh, With their hearts. Their hearts are being prepared to receive, to repent. Why why is their hearts being prepared? Because they're in sorrow. They see themselves as needing the Lord in their life. The kingdom of God is at hand. So uh, Samuel says these four things. Samuel perceives their heartbreak in verse 2. And here's his message. He preaches this to them. Repent. Repent. Replace your idols. Repair your hearts. Trust, serve, and pray. In verse 2, there were lamenting people. That word lament means to wail or to mourn. The Lord's absence was felt in their hearts, in their lives, and their hearts burned within them they desired god people who desire god have a true godly sorrow they have a true repentance they were crying for the presence of god to return as mightily as he had been in their lives before in verse 6 they even admitted we have sinned against the lord their hearts had led them to say we have sinned what does that mean that means they've acknowledged that they have sinned against the lord they, they've turned their back on the Lord you know and that's the thing is it takes God to penetrate a hard shell a hard heart because how many times do we see people never take the blame they never want to take guilt they never want to take blame they want to even when they're wrong they squirm out of trouble They get people to their ally and help them. To them, they did nothing wrong. If they did, they would never admit it. They certainly would not admit it. Hey, you know what? I was wrong. Forgive me. Forgive me for saying that. Forgive me. If I've offended you, forgive me. I didn't mean to. You know, you could fool me. And you can fool each other. But there's no fooling God. We all have that guilt, and we all need to own it before him. They said in verse 6, we have sinned against the Lord. Can you say that? Can you say that with all your heart? I am guilty. There's no one to blame. It's just me. It's my own wickedness. Yes, you are wicked. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't argue with me, argue with the Word of God. Yes, can you say that? Can you admit that in your heart? Lord, before the Lord, yeah, I mean, we do good things. We think good things. We have good intentions. We're sincere about, you know, how good we are. And we don't want to hurt people's feelings in general. But when it comes between you and them, you're going to pick you every single time. And when it comes to blame, you're going to pick them instead of you every single time. There's no way that you're going to let that take a hit on your pride. But when it comes before the Lord, you need to humble your heart. Get down on your knees saying, Lord, I am naked and open before you. There's no fooling God. You can deceive yourself. You can deceive me, but you cannot deceive God. If you're playing church, you need to stop. You need to repent before the Lord and get your heart right. With the Lord. The the reason that the people were separated from God was they were using God's presence as a novelty and sinning all they wanted to sin in their life. They were going after the idols of Baal and Ashtaroth. And the idols of Baal and Ashtaroth, you say, Well, I don't do that. Well, did you know what those idols represented? First of all, Baal represented he was the God of fertility. He was a god of power, and, and he was a god of the crops. And so, and Ashtaroth was the goddess of fertility. What they wanted to do was, hey, here's a system that's going to allow me to be belligerent in my sin. It's going to, there was a lot of sexual impurity in the religion. And then also, secondly, pressure, peer pressure, national peer pressure. Israel always had peer pressure. Next, they want a king here pretty soon. But the peer pressure, all of the rest of the land were indulgent in sexual immorality. They were feeding the flesh. Surely, I can have that and God too. And then when the Philistines came and smacked them down, they're like, whoa, wait, we've got the ark. I go to the church. I give tithe. I do all the things I do. I have the object of God. He's nowhere near my heart. That's right. But I have the object of God in my life. Why can't I use it? You know what? The God, God refused to be told what to do. They went out there with that ark like, God, it's your turn. You do it. All right. Well, let us know when you're done. God was far from their hearts. And look, verse 2, 20 years. 20 years. It was a long time. They lamented after the Lord. In Samuel, verse 3, he says, He spake unto the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts. There it is. That's it. That's the key. That's the capital. With all your hearts. We already see their hearts are being prepared with sorrow in verse 2. It takes a sorrowful heart to repent to God. You're not going to repent. If you don't have a sorrowful heart, you're not repenting. And he says, return unto the Lord. That's repent of your sins. And then what does he telling them to do? Then put away the strange gods and astral from among you. So not only repent, but replace your idols. Replace them in your lives. These are the reasons people forsake God today. They're trying to do things both one way or the other. They're they're trying to put God in the house of Dagon. You're living in the house of Dagon. You're living in in the land of, of idolatry, of fornication, of adultery. All of that is sin. There's no room for that. We sin and come short of the glory of God. But praise the Lord, he sends the Holy Spirit to convict us of our hearts. Yes, we do have sin, but that doesn't mean I can be happy about it, complacent about it. I might as well enjoy it. Here's the thing to remember, and here here is where it comes down to in verse 3. Yes, we all live in a land of Canaan. We all live in the land of idolatry. There's so much temptation. Out there, there's so much in your home. You may not even know is hurting your children or hurting your wife. It's not hurting you, but it could be. There's so much stuff that we have, but what's our affection on? That's, that's the number one rule. You know what's interesting is, is he says, first, return with your heart. That's where it starts. Where do you set your, where's your love? Where's your love? It has to start with love. It starts with you loving the Lord more than your sin. That's it. Do you love the Lord more than your sin? If you don't, you won't get victory over it. You're going to continue to love it. You're going to continue to find reasons for it to be in your life. And what else will happen is it will frustrate you because you're going to be involved with the same grievance over and over and over. You're going to become depressed. You're going to become unjoyful. You're going to be a Christian that lives in your life in defeat. Because here's the thing. is It's not get rid of the stuff, then love the Lord. It's love the Lord first. And then everything else will follow. When your affection's on the Lord, when you love the Lord more than that sin that's so easily besetting you in your life, the the idols in which we continually turn back to as Israel did, those things in which we, we forsake God, and then when we are in real need of God, we ache in our hearts because His presence is not with us. And so what we do is instead of thinking, okay, well I need to stop doing this. You could leave this place and I would have failed miserably. If you leave this place and you say you know what I'm going to stop doing this sin. It has it has been a thorn in my flesh and I'm resolved this time to do it. If you leave here with nothing else but that in your mind I have failed you because you're not going to get victory. You have to love the Lord first. You have to have the relationship back. Your heart needs a lament over the wail to mourn. Actually, it's to grieve. That word means to grieve as you would grieve a loved one who's died. You're grieving the presence of God in your life. If God is not working that hard in you, that is when you come to repentance. and Lord, forgive me for I have sinned. And as we go on... um, No, we're running out of time. It's the strange gods. He says, okay, verse 3, Repent, return unto the Lord with all your hearts. That's number one. Then put away the strange gods. That is, replace. Don't just stop your sin. Replace your sin. And ask to from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord. The next thing we see is repair. Prepare, return, repent, replace your idols, repair your hearts. Serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then what did the children of Israel do? They didn't say, you know what, you're right, I need to do that, and one day I am. They didn't do that in verse five. verse 4. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. How's the only way they did that? Because their heart. It's got to be the heart. Verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray unto you and to the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel and Mizpah. You know, I looked and I, I was trying to see if there was something significant with that ritual, which they poured out the water before the Lord and fasted. And we don't really see a lot of, of kind of... Uh, Ritual in the Old Testament to do that But what this is is more Symbolic and if you go Back to Jeremiah Jeremiah says I have poured out My heart before him Like water Repentance is pouring Out your heart like Water so he can fill you That's it That's it He's number one in your Heart He's all that matters The people of Israel lamented for revival. They cried unto God to return the power back into their lives. Twenty years they had turned their back on God. They had dabbled in the idolatry. They dabbled in the world system. They dabbled into this. First of all, because they started loving their sin more than loving the Lord. Secondly, they were pressured. So much peer pressure. Pray for our young ones, our teenagers. Even more and more and more, it seems like our, our young people are just being inundated with the world. TikTok, Instagram, and not only that, it's coming at light speed at them. So pray for them. Uh, the Lord just put a hedge of protection around them and that we're faithful to that generation to continue to preach them sound doctrine. But we live in that land. We live in, we may not have an actual Balaam or Ashtaroth, but those are the allurements, that's the lust, that they sought and they continually fell. Did you know, actually, when it stopped being a problem, God got fed up with their sin? And what did he do? It's called the Babylonian exile. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. And it wasn't until they came back as a repentful, defeated people that they finally, finally, got rid of the false gods. Instead of bowing down to these ancient forms, we sometimes will replace God. Is there some in our life that's replacing God as our ultimate love? God's message, if there is, God's message is clear. Repent. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Replace your idols. Forsake those things which you have replaced God with in your life. Love God more than your sin. Then repair your hearts. Pour out your hearts like water unto him. Serve him. We saw in Sunday school that the scriptures were written for our comfort and consultation. That, that means that it was, it's for our growth. The, the word of God is alive. And we are alive. And it's feeding us with living truth. And it's helping equip us in our Christian life to endure our Christian life it's not just about knowledge it's feeding us the living bread second Chronicles says if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and shall seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land have you been running from the Lord we know the prodigal son You know, the prodigal son, when he returned back to the father, he came to the acknowledgement himself. He had to. No one could talk the prodigal son into going back to the father. Only he could do that. And it was only when he acknowledged what he had done that he came and he knew where to go. He knew where to go back to in his life for the joy, security, and the salvation. And I don't know if, the, if you do not know the Lord as your personal Savior today. I pray that today that you repent of your sins. Know that you have sinned before God. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And one day you will be accountable for each and every sin, even if you think it's a white lie or not, it, not even that harmful enough to even get God's notice. That's not true. All of us have sinned. And the wages of that sin is death. But God has given the gift of His Son for salvation, that if you look to Him, that God has poured out all His wrath upon Jesus, His Son, who died on the cross. Now here's the question. Was He paying for your sins, your sins that you committed yesterday, today, and tomorrow? If Je- did Jesus die for your sins on the cross? Were your sins nailed to the cross as Jesus was nailed to the cross? Today, if you believe upon Him, trust in Him with all your heart. Know that God had raised Him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Turn your back upon sin and turn your eyes upon Jesus. And He will become your life. He will. Or maybe you've been running. Maybe you've just lived this life and it just seems like, Lord, your presence has been gone for too long. Just like the people of Israel your heart is lamenting for the Lord. Something's come up in your life, and you need His presence. You know your heart has grown cold out of your own choices. But now you want to repent of your sins, turn back to Him, forsake those idols that are in your life, replace them with your love for the Lord as number one in your life. Whatever your need may be today, we invite you to come. Brother Ron and Sister Harriet, if you'd come, and let's all stand, please, and we'll have a song. Of-